Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for September 18th, 2022 is called Privilege Check. The speaker is John Ray, and it was recorded on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, by the way, are we doing the kids thing, Betty? No? Okay. No, Laura was sick. So. Oh, no. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. Um, hey, everybody. Wow. That, that's church right there. Um, really glad you're here. Again, my name is John Ray here at Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. And so um, part of Christian worship is declaring what has been done with us, done for us. And so that's what we were experiencing here as we started off. It's a declaration. It's a reminder because as human beings, we need those regular rhythms of being reminded. And then we also need to speak them. We need to, we need to declare the things that are done. And that freedom is essential to us as Christians, what we're going to look at this morning. Um, but it's very easy to take that for granted, especially as Americans. It's very easy to take our, our freedom for granted. And it's also, um, it's easy to use it for the wrong reason. It's easy to take it for granted, to use it for the wrong reason. And on the other side is in places where we feel oppressed, in places where we feel that we are put upon, it's easy to think that our freedom is dependent totally on circumstances. That, it, it, that the freedom comes from outside in. And so we're going to look at this concept in a chapter in the Bible. It's Peter's letter to a church. So it's, it's 1 Peter. So if you have the Bible on your app or if you have your Bibles with you, you, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3 today. And freedom, of course, is a very hot topic in our society, in our world. Um, There's a lot of people talk about fighting for freedom and a lot of people about talking about having to demand our rights of freedom. And I have a tendency personally to kind of, because of my privilege, because I'm a white man in America, I am afforded a lot of privilege. I am afforded a lot of freedom that I recognize other people don't have, or at least I thought I did. I thought I understood it until I had an experience a few years back. And in this experience, uh, my wife and I, Jane, my wife Jane and I, were traveling to India. We were going to go to India to work on a project. And we flew from northwest Arkansas to New York, and we had sent our passports off to get our visas, and we were going to get on the plane. And we got up to the counter, and they looked at Jane's passport, and they were like, yes, go on. And they looked at my passport, and they said, you cannot go. Now, I'm packed for a month-long trip to go to work in India. And they looked at my passport and said, you, you're not allowed in you can't go. You don't have the right visa. And again, I didn't recognize it at the time, but the privilege that I've experienced all of my life, immediately my response was, well, there must be a mistake. <laughs> Can I talk to the manager, please? I just immediately assumed that, well, something's gone wrong. They've, they've misinterpreted this. They're not reading it right. Because who would deny me the right to do this thing? 
I'm going over there to do good things with, with this company. Why would they say no to me? So I quickly appealed the process, and they said no again. And then I had to watch my wife get on the plane to go to India for a month without me as I stayed back. But I still refused to accept that answer. Like I, I went to the, to the imp consulate in Houston. I pleaded my case personally, and they just said no. And I asked again, and they said no. And I asked again, and they said, we will continue to tell you no every time that you ask. There was no reason given. It was not explained to me. They didn't tell me why they told me no. They just said no. So I was confused. I was angry. I was upset with this whole situation with that. But being told no also revealed something in me that I wouldn't have known was there before. It taught me something about myself. It taught me something about my expectations. It taught me something about my privilege that I experience going through the world with this. Now we're going to look at this text, and I'll show you how this ties together as we get going. Um, so we have been studying through this letter. We've, we've, we started with 1 Peter 1, chapter 2, we're now in chapter 3. And we have to understand the history of the text we're about to read, how it has been used and abused, because we're going to talk about some things, some specific portions of text here that have been used to hurt people. The reality, the unfortunate reality of Christianity that we have to own is that words that were written to bring freedom have been used, have been words that have been twisted to bring oppression. We have to admit that. It's not the fault of the words per se, but the fault of the people interpreting. And that could be just due to ignorance. It also could be due to malicious holding on of privilege. But these words that we're, re that we're reading, uh, for some people, they're going to they're feel heavy. They're going to feel burdensome. They're going to they're feel them like, hey, those have been used to hurt me before. And so what I want to do is make room to recognize that, but also hopefully look at them in a light that will begin to change that interpretation and that experience of them. Um, Laura commented in our teaching team, so, so one of the ways that I prepare the sermons here at Grace Church is we meet every week and we talk about the sermon as a team. So we have a whole group of people that gets together and we, and we talk and we say, I think it means this and I think it means this and, and we do our research and we read. So really what I'm preaching today is the, is the culmination of a group effort. It's, it's not just my opinion about it, but it's the, it's the consensus of a group of people who work through this all week with that. Uh, so Laura said, she said, part of the specific reason this passage has been used to abuse is because it's so specific. And that's the thing is, you know, when we read the Bible, we can't read it all as one thing. We have to understand that some of the situations there are what we call descriptive. They're just describing what happened. It's not meant to be binding on us. It's not meant to be a rule for us. They're just explaining what happened in a certain situation. And others are proscriptive. They are very much the command. They are very much saying you should live like this. 
And in general, what we have is the more specific that they're describing a situation or a cultural context, the more descriptive that practice is. The more they talk about in generalities, the more they talk about in big concepts, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your so and all your spirit, that those are more proscriptive. Those are more binding on all people at all times with that. This letter from Peter is very specific. So that means that we need to put our ears up, our antenna up, and go, is this, is this descriptive or is this proscriptive with this? And I believe there are principles here, but we need to take them in the context that they're offered. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to stop and make some comments along, along the way. So starting with verse 1, it says, in the same way, stop. We're going, to st we're going to make a quick stop in the same way. So what this means is there's something that's come before this. That we have to understand what's come before if we're going to understand what follows with this. So this is the culmination. What we're going to read today is the culmination of an argument and a metaphor Peter is making about how the church is to be something radically different from any other ordering system or construct. It's, this whole argument started with, hey, you are living stones being built together. You, the church, are being built together. Its nature is one derived from Jesus, centered in our calling as followers of Jesus, and humans made in the image of God, designed to reflect and redeem that image to a broken world. So the whole argument here is our witness. The whole argument here is about the role the church is to play in society. What is its telos? What is its reason for existence? Why church? Why do we do this thing? What's the goal with that? Um, and the, the thing is that we quickly see is that the church doesn't operate or organize or function or exist in the same way as other human institutions. We don't operate as a business. One of the worst things a church can do is, become, is model after a business. We're also not a government. We don't, we don't model ourselves after any human institution. We are a distinct organism in the world. The church is called to be something other than government or business or education. Now, we might do some of those things, but we're, we're essentially something other. Um, at the same time, this is not some kind of airy, fairy, otherworldly dream state that has no relation to here and now. The church is tangible. We, we talk about it, we'll talk about that when we take communion. It's a flesh and blood, it's, it's here and now. The, the Christian idea of incarnate, that God has become one of us with that, that we'll see as we go. Um, so, lost my place here. Um, yeah, so, so he talks about this freedom. We're going to talk about it because he says in 2.6, he says previously to what, we read, to what we read here, in 2.16 he says, live as free people, not using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor all people, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the king. So there's a myth of neutrality that we have in the United States. There's a myth that we can abstain from being for or against something. That somehow there's this nebulous, clean center that doesn't get us dirty in things. But the truth is, 
we're either walking in freedom or walking in slavery. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality on this situation. And Peter addresses the church as a whole, and specifically three categories of people in the world at the time that the world would consider unworthy of addressing. The power of the metaphors that he's using here is that he's addressing groups of people that the world at that time would consider not worth addressing at all. The first are people who are living under an oppressive, occupying foreign power. That's the first group he addresses here. People who are living under the subjugation, the tyrannical rule of a foreign power oppressing them, stealing from them. Peter is talking to them. The second group are slaves, people who have been involuntarily subjugated with that. People who in, in this day and age when this was written, would not, some would not even have been considered human or, or, or fully human in that. And Peter's talking directly to them, which is very rare in this type of literature. Now they were talked about a lot, but not talked to. And Peter is talking to them. And then the last one we'll see this morning is wives. And wives includes all women with this. And again, the same thing. Women in this society did not have the cultural prestige. They did not have the abilities afforded to men, especially free men. And again, they were talked about a lot, but rarely were they talked to. And Peter is talking to all three of these groups. Um, so he goes, so we started with, in the same way, and then it picks up, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Then even if some are disobedient to the world, they will be won over by a word of the way you live when they see your pure and reverent conduct. Now, I want to be quick to say, this is not an instruction to, say in an abuse, to stay in an abusive relationship. Full stop. You cannot misconstrue this as some kind of imperative that you have, that a woman has to stay in an abusive relationship. That is not what is being said here at all. It is an, no, it is an invitation for us to see something different going on here. So let's, let's keep going. He goes, let your beauty not be external, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, but the inner person of the heart, the lasting beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit, which is precious in God's sight. For in the same way, the holy women who hoped in God long ago adorned themselves by being subject to their husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You become her children when you do what is good and have no fear in doing so. Which, when he says you become her children, this is super interesting because Jesus clearly indicated that we become the children of Abraham through faith. So there's a typology here of Abraham and Sarah. One, Abraham being, being the father of faith. By faith we become children of Abraham. But also by this inner peace, by this inner freedom that Sarah demonstrated, we also become the children of God with that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's linked to this idea of becoming children of faith through Abraham, here through Sarah, we are also offered something. 
This reflects the same calling of the church as a whole, to live in such a way that bears witness to the beauty of the kingdom, the goodness and reality of God, the truth of the gospel. What's happening here is there is, there is an idea, there is an embrace, there is an adherence to something that is so beautiful that it transcends our circumstances. There is, a, there is a strength here that is being recognized and we are invited to emulate with that. And here's a really important thing. A lot of times, a lot of texts, like I said, ancient writers would talk about wives, they would talk about slaves, they would talk about um, imprisoned people, but they would also talk, but they would talk specifically to husbands, leaders, lords, military leaders, commanders. They would talk. And normally that talk was how to rule. Normally those instructions written to men would have been how you rule better. Listen to what Peter says. Husbands, in the same way. Whoa. What? Husbands. In this same way. What is that way? You're not worried about your outward appearance. You may not be braiding your hair or wearing gold or fancy clothes, but what about that suit? What about that car? What about that briefcase? What about that cell phone? Hmm? Yeah, no. In the same way, lay those things aside. In the same way with gentleness, in the same way with godliness, you are to do this. Treat your wives with consideration as the weaker partners and show them honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. In this way, nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this weaker. Treat your wives as weaker vessels, as some versions say. Laura did a great job a few weeks ago talking about how Peter is a realist here. What he is not saying is that women are ontologically weaker, ontologically in essence of being. Peter is not arguing that men are strong and women are weak. What he is doing is he is describing the reality of the situation. That in that society, in that context, the experiential truth was, yeah, that women were weaker. Not physically weaker, not morally weaker, not intellectually weaker. They were weaker in position of society. They just didn't have the rights. They were not afforded the freedoms that were afforded to the men. The men could go places the women couldn't. The men could do things the women couldn't. The men could say things the women couldn't. They were weaker in this context. And by addressing that, by calling that out, he's calling them to reject that narrative. That that is not the way things should be. But we have to deal with life and the world as it is if we're going to change it for something else. And the Bible, in its best, is very clear when it describes the reality of things as they aren't while keeping us focused and calling us to do things the way they should be with that. That's what's happening here. Then he goes on. He says, finally, all of you, men, women, slave, free, oppressed, 
whoever. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, and humble. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead bless others because you were called to inherit a blessing. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 34 here. He says, For the one who wants to love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from uttering deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the Lord's face, face is against those who do evil. And this is where he wraps up. This is kind of the wrap-up line about the church. He stops there. He goes, okay, we've looked at all these examples. Here we wrap it up. Everybody be harmonious. Do this thing. But now he transitions or he gives a segue. And Betty's going to lead us next week uh, in teaching where he goes. But there's a little precursor here about he's very realistic about the response that this is going to elicit. Listen, he's, Peter is no idealist in the sense that he says, hey, if you do this, everybody's going to applaud you. Oh, so good. Glad to see it. Glad you do this. You are such good people for doing this. No, he, he's a realist. He knows that, that this is a direct affront to the established powers. This is a direct contradiction to how the society is ordered. This is going to stir things up. This is going to make waves. So he goes on, and he says this. Um, he says, for who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But in fact, if you happen to suffer, but in fact, you might as well say you are going to suffer, for doing this right, you are blessed, but do not be terrified them or be shaken. But, Christ, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if God wills it, than doing evil. And then they go into this little, it's an interesting little hymn or song that the early church used to sing. Or maybe it was a chant. I, we, we really don't know, but we know that this is something that Peter is not, it, it doesn't originate with Peter. He, Peter is sampling here. Just like in a song when they sample part of another song. Peter's sampling here. He says, because Christ also suffered for sins, but just for, it, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God by being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in it he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And so it, Laura made a great point here with this thing is, we need to reject the idea that everything needs to be perfect before we're free. We need to reject this idea that everything has to line up before we start to walk in gentleness or humility. That somehow we're going to fight our way to a place of peace. Somehow we're going to, to hurl, hurl insults and deride and be abusive and that's going to create space where we have peace. Right? No. It's not how it works with that. And the truth is, all of us are in situations. All of us have situations in our lives. All of us are in societies or different parts of things where it makes it really hard to be free. Some more than others. Some much more than others. But all of us face situations where it's just easier just not to be nice, not to be good, not to be loving, not to be humble, not to be gentle. 
And we need to reject this idea that those things have to line up before we can do those things with it. He goes on then to end with um, just a recounting of history with this that we won't go in with. But we need to understand this. To really engage the text honestly and with discernment, we must pay attention to the author's intended audience and the context in which it was written. Who, where, why, and when is the author writing can help us understand why they are writing and what they're writing. It can help us understand why they choose to talk about certain things and choose not to talk about other things, what they give significance to. And that helps us make a more wise application here. Now, so here's the thing. Back to the passport story. Like I said, I, I like to think of myself as understanding. I like to think of myself as aware. Y'all, I'm not. I'm blind. I'm limited. I can't know everything. I need experiences and you, y'all, to teach me what I don't know, what I don't see. And that what this experience of being not allowed to go into India taught me is I just assume a whole lot of privilege in my life. I just assume that I have a whole lot of freedom. Look, I walk down the street at night. I normally am not scared. Just by the way, the very way that I look. I mean, I made a baby cry this morning. It's just the blessing that I have of how I look. Um, not, I, and, I, and while I can say I understand that other people don't have that, I talk to my wife all the time, and she, she talks about it increasingly how she is just overlooked as a woman who has passed a certain age, right? Like, that, that people actually don't see her because of who she is. Because she's a woman of a certain age. She looks a certain way, of a certain stature with that. I, I, I need somebody to teach me that, to show me that. I can, I can know about it intellectually, but until I run up the experience of having something similar, being rejected, being denied, being dismissed, not being given an explanation, being expected just to run off and not ask any questions, then I know it. Then I start to feel it. Then I start to know it. And I need to name that. I need to name my privilege. I need to, I need to recognize. It's not a bad thing. I'm not, I don't feel guilty for it. It's just what it is. It's just whatever the lottery is that I was born the way that I am, where I am, when I am. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's just however that works. It's, it's what happened. But I do have a responsibility to name it, and I do have a responsibility to do something about it. That's the thing. And that's the mystery that we're being called to here. That to be a follower of Jesus is the call to live as a free person in whatever circumstance we are in, but also to freely choose to submit to God and others for the sake of the kingdom. This is crazy, y'all. 
This is so countercultural. It says, hey, if you're a slave, if you're oppressed, if you live in an oppressed country, and it's amazing that y'all are here this morning, right? Because we have this wide variety of experiences here. And I, and I hope you hear everything I'm saying with humility and I want to learn. But it, it's, it's like we live in a world where not everyone is free. We live in a world where not everybody is afforded the same privileges, where everybody is afforded the same responsibilities. But there is a freedom that comes in God that transcends that. That that freedom is going to be an outworking of something that happens inwardly. That we cannot wait for freedom to happen, to come to us through political change or societal change, even though those things need to be changed. Desperately, immediately, as quickly as possible, they need to be changed. But that freedom is not based upon those external things. It comes from the inside first. It is an outworking of those things. And at the same time, those of us who are free, who are born with these things, born with this privilege, we are to use that to see that happen. It is our calling not to just assume that we deserve it somehow, but to voluntarily submit ourselves so that those other things change with that. If you are oppressed, glory in the freedom that God has called you to. If you are free, humble yourself. Humble yourself and submit that freedom for the good of others and the good of the kingdom. That's the paradox that's happening here. And all of us are somewhere on the scale. It's not clear. Every one of us has a different experience. We're all, in some areas we're free, in some other areas we're, we're constricted, but we're all called to this paradox with this. Um... I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. There's a writer named Dante Stewart who said, the Christian faith can never be a faith of love and liberation if it depends on creating enemies, holding on to power and controlling people. Jesus never needs others to be less in order for God to be more. To me, maybe that is the most ultimate expression of this freedom is, is to walk in such a way that we're not just reversing the order. We're not just switching places. The oppressed for the oppressor, the unfree for the free, or the free for the slave. Like, like no, this, this is a freedom called to all of us, but we all have different responses to that to make that happen, depending on our circumstances, so that those circumstances change. All of us need to regularly examine ourselves and discern where we need to be, where we need to free ourselves from oppression, injustice, and abuse. And at the same time, we need to check how and, and for whom we are using our freedom. It's humbling for me to say this. Y'all, it's humbling for me to say this. Um, like I said, as someone who's experienced so much, this just been given to me because of who I am. Um, I hope my pledge is to use whatever I have to see this extend with that. But it's not dependent on me. If you're looking to me to make it happen, 
got nothing for you. It's not going to happen with me. It's going to happen from Jesus working through us together. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.